Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, host of New Books and Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have Professor Shanette Garrett-Scott with me, author of the new book, Banking on Freedom, Black Women in U.S. Finance Before the New Deal. The book was just published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Professor Garrett-Scott, thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. So your, your book is just awfully, awfully interesting on so many levels. Um, and before we, we get to, into it, I, I really wanted to uh, uh, highlight, which for me was one of the most interesting parts in the background, which is in the beginning of the book, as you set the stage for uh, the, the main tale to come, there's a, a lot of material on... Uh, informal societies and self-help societies and burial societies. So, you know, for the modern readers in finance, in which you have a lot of large organizations that are are kind of national or even global in nature, I think it's incredibly helpful to remind people that before this kind of modern age, so much of finance and banking and insurance and burial societies was done locally. Can you kind of, you know, reintroduce? us as to how that, uh, you know, those informal societies, what that was like. So these uh, informal societies, these mutual aid um, societies were very important in global capitalism. So they come, of course, from British friendly societies. And when um, settlers came over to the New World, they brought those organizations with them. Africans, too, when they were brought over from Africa to serve as an enslaved labor, um, they also were bringing with them a tradition of self-help and mutual aid, credit, governing um, societies. And their experiences in the Americas um, forced them to kind of blend these European secret societies with the uh, African secret societies. And it's really important to note that um, even enslaved people um, relied on um, their own resources, especially to assure a burial for, uh, for, for themselves. But they also would save money um, as a way to buy freedom or, and also to make their lives in slavery um, a little bit easier. So I think that's important. Well, it's important to note that it was a blending of uh, the tradition from Europe and America and Africa as well, but it again really shows how the African American experience in business is is interwoven in the development of capitalism in the United States. It's not a separate story, um, but one that is really intimately connected. So these societies, as I said, were really important, especially for uh, ensuring burials um, and providing um, a place for African-Americans to save money and extend credit to each other. And they serve the exact same purpose also for immigrants, uh, for other you know Anglo-Americans um, in the early part of um the U.S. history. Yeah, my my uh, as I did some family history, my uh, forebears came uh, from Eastern Europe and Russia, and they. Uh, I, I know that my uh, great grandfather is buried in the Minsk Burial Association lot 
in a in a cemetery in the Bronx in New York, and they all belonged to that cemetery society and paid for their plot beforehand, so that when they passed uh, the community, they had you know prepared that. But it was an association, and I know that association also provided other other services to the members, but it started as a burial association. Right, exactly. Especially as, particularly with immigrants, as, you know, more and more immigrants come to the United States. And then, of course, with African Americans, uh, uh, after the Civil War and emancipation, they, 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 take these societies and uh, transform them, um, saving some elements, say, of like the, um, the conviviality, uh, meeting together, yes, um, yes. the kind of civic um, fe- features of those. And they really try to graft them onto the new economic challenges that they are facing. And of course, that happens as well in mainstream U.S. society. So you have societies like the uh, these societies that become these major companies like Prudential mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and MetLife and others. And so uh, then we take it up a notch from a, a really a local uh, burial society to these more formal organizations. And in the, the one that you follow is an outgrowth of, of uh, the Order of St. Luke, and it, it has various permutations, which, you know, sets the stage. So they, they become, you know, more than just a local uh, community, they they really become much more complex. And of course, it's important to note that in the case of, of the St. Luke Society, the headwinds that this organization faced were just massively, uh, uh, just massive headwinds because of, of prejudice against the members, but that, that nevertheless, um, uh, a more formal, wide-ranging, multi-office, multi-city self-help association, the Order of St. Luke emerges and uh, uh, creates the basis for for the creation of the bank later. But, you know, that that is just a fascinating tale as to what the Order of St. Luke did. Do you want to provide some of that some of that tale? I guess so. So those is so the Saint, the independent order of St. Luke was first started in 1856 um, by a free black woman in Baltimore. Of course, after the war, um, she sees uh, an opportunity to extend these services to these large populations of newly freed African-Americans. So, and, and she is not the only one. There are thousands of these organizations that make the transition from slavery to um, freedom. But the Independent Order of St. Luke, I think, is in particular of, uh, unique because it, Prout, when she started the organization in 1856, really imagined it as an organization for women by women. There were men who were connected with the Independent Order of St. Luke, but uh, by and large, especially as it grows in the 20th century, um, it is really uh, controlled by uh, an important cadre of black women. And so the important head, the, the headwinds that they face have to do with juggling the kind of double burden of Being not just racism. But sexism right. as and again, well. I just mentioned the name because just so it's it's clear because there are two two women who emerge. The first one is Mary Ann Prout, P R O U T, and she's in the first stage here with the the orders. The uh, the, the the real heroine shows up next. But as you point out, they are facing a double burden of of uh, finance and services as both women and as a black uh, minority in in, uh, in after the Civil War, but struggling against the the continued challenges. Uh, and but to make it a formal multi-city 
multi-city organization providing a variety of services, leaving a church and going outside of just the church confines into regular non-church civil society is a difficult, a difficult challenge. Yes, it was a difficult challenge. Part of the challenge early on was just convincing many African-Americans that they needed um, insurance because these service uh, these societies had to extend beyond just providing um, burial services. But they also now you have these working um, adults and children, uh, working women in particular, who need some protections in the event that they're sick um, and they need money to, to, to make ends meet, um, and then also to ensure their lives. And then also because of racism, because of segregation, um, uh, many of these societies get the idea to pool these small resources, the nickels and the dimes, together to create businesses and services that serve these growing African-American communities. So the independent order of St. Luke is not unique, um, but they are important, I think, in um, that not only do they, of course, form a bank, but they also run a store, a newspaper, uh, as well as their insurance arm. So these, um, you're right. So as these organizations kind of leave their little uh, parochial city um, focus and become these national network of councils and um, state organizations. Um, they just, this increases the bureaucracy, but it also increases the wealth and um, brings a lot of attention to them. On the one part, as a part, um, on the one hand, as these symbols of what African Americans can do. Um, despite the restrictions um, of Jim Crow and racism, and for women too, despite the kinds of negative um, stereotypes and connotations about African American women's sexuality, their intellect, um, the limited opportunities that they face in a segmented uh, marketplace, um, this the Independent Order of St. Luke emerges as a symbol of African American um, success. And of course, with that symbol, uh, because the, you have black pride, but you also it also in some ways becomes targeted um, by. Yeah, and I, I saw that the, the, the more complicated the financial activities became. Yeah. The greater the pressure from either competitors or regulators acting um, ag aggressively as regulators so that the, the more successful the venture became, the harder the venture became. Yes. And so this, this story, I think, is also really important to highlight um, the, the links between kind of extra legal violence that we, as we understand the history of you know, African-Americans and their experience, um, we, of course, under, learn about lynching and that kind of um, uh, mob, ex mob and extra legal violence. But when you are um, operating these really complex financial institutions, um, on the one hand, they do you know, suffer some threats um, of, of that kind of, you know, racial sexual violence, but they're also become, they also become really vulnerable to their regulator. regulations. Yeah, the state um, regulators. Yes. Um, uh, a pressure from mer local merchants who mm -hmm. try to push them out as competitors. Um, they face a lot of red tape. Um, limitations on their access to capital. So these 
things that perhaps on the under context would be seen as some of the kind of uh, downsides or darker sides of uh, competition really become a kind of other a kind of violence or aggression against uh, these particular kinds of organizations. Nevertheless, uh, the IOSL uh, continued, developed, grew, splintered, splintered. I know there were you know various organizations, uh, various divisions and so forth. And then uh, we get to sort of the main part of your story, which is if you know both the high point of this type of enterprise, including the high point of the opposition, is the creation of a state chartered official bank, and that's 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 where that's what uh, you know happens next with both all of the resistance and the success of it, and really the tale banking on freedom is is the tale of uh, Maggie Lena Walker, who you'll introduce in a second, and and um, the St. Luke's Bank as the, the, uh, the height of this effort and also the height of the challenges that this effort of, of self-financing community uh, faced. Uh, could you just share some of the history of the founding of the St. Luke Bank? Yes. So when um, Magdalena Walker emerges as the leader, the Grand Secretary Treasurer of the Independent Order of St. Luke uh, around the turn of the 20th century, and she puts forth a Bold economic and this is just in, 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 just to clarify, because that is a, at this point, a, a, if not a national, but a, a regional organization. But she is the in the Richmond, uh, yes. Richmond, correct. So She's the head of the Richmond organization. Yes, she. Uh, well, the headquarters is in Richmond. The headquarters is switched, has basically shifted from Baltimore to um, Richmond with the splintering that you talked mm-hmm. about and the development and the um, and the growth of the organization. Um, but it almost dies out. Um, toward the end of the century, uh, from uh, uh, end of the century, but Magdalena Walker um, comes on board, and she has a bold economic vision to make the order even more powerful, to extend it even further across the America, to provide more services, and one of for her the essential service is not just the insurance, but banking. She wants to be able to help capitalize African-American business, but also to grow black wealth, especially in the era, uh, in the area of, of home ownership. And uh, what's really fascinating and unique about the St. Luke Bank is it is the first bank that is founded, organized, and led by African-American women. So Magdalena Walker is the president, but the main shareholders in the bank the, the, the main people who buy stock and build up this bank are working class African-American women, washerwomen, um, factory workers, uh, but also some middle class African-American women. So most of the, the people who uh, buy stock and get the bank started are uh, African-American women. And this, the, the book has your account has an interesting story that actually chartering a bank isn't easy, raising the capital for a bank isn't easy. And then when you're trying to raise capital from a bank from many small investors, it's not easy. And you know, some sort of said they were there was a kind of a discount to, hey, please help charter the bank. You need to put in $20, we'll take $5 now, pay the 15 later. And the 15 was awfully hard to come by. And uh, you know, it, it was a real struggle just to keep the, the base operation going. Yeah. So uh- so Walker has this vision, um, but 
she does run up against the reality that, as you said, that these uh, many of these working women are low paid, uh, poorly paid. Um, but she becomes creative in her ideas about how to finance the bank. So she does uh, begin to offer kind of a, a loan or installment plan to pay for stock. She also seeks um, kind of collective or cooperative stock purchases by seeking other small local um, independent order of St. Luke councils and other fraternal society fraternal societies to kind of maybe pool pool money together to buy larger blocks of stock. But she and she of course travels all around the country and she begins promising in in places like New York and um, along the East Coast especially she's she's telling people about this this wonderful bank you know created by African American women but this is an opportunity for African-Americans to invest in each other. And she tries to encourage um, uh, you know, loans and, and draw business from around the country. And, and she, you know, she basically succeeds. The bank takes deposits. Uh, uh, the bank provides mortgages. Uh, in your tale, much of the day is spent fighting for survival. But uh, they're uh, when they're not fighting for survival. That ten minutes a day when they're not fighting for their very survival, they're actually in the in the normal business of a bank. And you know, mortgages were provided, mortgages were paid off. Maybe not as much as you know, National Citibank at the time, but but it it, it did meet the standards of uh, what we would understand as a deposit taking mortgage lending bank. Yes, it did, and so it operated, of course, as a bank. But given the kind of unique situation um, with as, as African-American women, um, in many ways, she often had to accommodate the racism and sexism, but also sub find ways to subvert it. So one of the really most important ways was through um, providing these loans to buy homes. So, of course, she's in one, on the one hand limited in where African-Americans are able to purchase these properties, um, but she still encourages home ownership. And once she especially has black women um, owning their own homes, she is then able to encourage them to pay their poll taxes, um, to be active in local civic affairs, um, and and to continue to you know to strengthen and anchor uh, African American communities. So you you begin to see in in several other cities these kind of small you know Black Wall Streets these these enclaves of African American owned businesses, um, a, a home uh, pe people own their own homes, and there are these really vital those segregated, but these really vital, vibrant um, places where people are really, in, you know, actively engaged in not just consumption and capitalism, um, but also culture and um, activism and politics and consciousness building and consciousness raising. So these banks uh, are just such an essential part of African-Americans, you know, freedom dreams, their, their ideas about what it means to be um, citizens in a country that has so many restrictions um, and barriers um, in their wake. But th they really illustrate the, the, the drive and the ambition that drives 
so many other Americans towards success. And, and these are really great stories of people, you know, really acting under very adverse circumstances and with limited opportunities and limited resources, really making something that is important. And as you say, not as big as uh, uh, what becomes Bank of America or even some of the banks on these local paces, but they are still no less important to these, com- to the, not just these communities, but as symbols and inspiration for other places around the country. And so uh, and it's worth pointing out just the time frame so that people understand the, the bank was founded in 1903 and the, the prime of the bank is from 1903 until the, the, the crash uh, and the, the rise and fall of the bank. Unfortunately, there is a fall of the bank, but you know, the, it's prime time was for a couple decades before, before the crash. It, it's worth, uh, and I, you know, your, your book is academic and it cites a lot of information. It seems that there is other, you know, you, you're not the first person to discover, uh, Maggie Lennon Walker, but she is a force of nature and is worth probably 10 books. I, I don't know. Are there, are there other accounts of her? Is she as well known as she probably ought to be? And again, I apologize. I am not a U.S. historian. And therefore, I, if I don't know the answer to that, I apologize. But she seems worth several books on her own. I guess there is a, a, a biography of her um, by um, uh, Gertrude Marlowe, who was published. She was, but she's an anthropologist. And she mm-hmm. really looks at um, Walker and the Independent Order of St. Luke. It is a wonderful book. Um, it has a lot of really rich details and information about her life and her activism um, and her community involvement. And then Elsa Barkley Brown has written a number of really important articles about her, uh, say for the OAH, the Organization of American Historians magazine, as well as a really famous um, article, which talks about her and and feminism um, and uh, raising kind of feminist consciousness. Um, and they, of course, acknowledge her great business acumen. But I do think that my book is the first book to really look focus at on the business part. Yeah, the focus yeah. on the business aspect, ex- mm-hmm. how she raised money. They invested and spent money, collected debts, uh, provided opportunities, worked inside the bank. Um, so I think that uh, it's important for that. And of course, in, in, in Richmond and in the southeastern part of the country, she is well known in Richmond, there are high schools named for her very recently last year, I think, I guess I think it's last year, a monument was erected, um, a public a memorial um, to her. So uh, she gets, she, and, and the National Park Service, of course, has a house, uh, the Magdalena Walker House in Richmond that gets, you know, mil- millions of visitors. So you're able to actually see her home and, and learn more about her and see the community in which she lived. So she's doing she's doing well a hundred years later. It, was she that well regarded at the time, or is it really a hundred years later that that she is being uh, elevated to the status? I mean, is, was she viewed as pathbreaking and a force of nature at the time, or is that really a, a, a creation of the historians? I, I just out of curiosity. Yeah, unfortunately, we do have a lot of stories of people who don't get their due uh, when they were living. Um, but uh, Magdalena Walker was seen as a, an incredible um, woman at, at the time, and I, I talk about in the book how I think that. 
sometimes for her, it became um, a burden um, to be seen as like the woman in finance, the African-American woman mm-hmm. um, in finance. So many, so often she would be the only woman among these bankers and um, financiers who saw themselves as plotting the economic future of African-Americans. So on the one hand, she enjoyed a, 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 a large popularity uh, around the country and was very well known as this kind of novelty of the only Black woman bank president. But she did spend much of her life, her her goal really was to bring more women into the finance industry. So the actually the independent order of St. Luke and St. Luke Bank are really important because they were the largest employer of white collar or corporate, you know, um, African American women um, in the nineteen in the nineteen teens and the nineteen twenties. Well, again, I, it's almost uh, hopefully there's even more to come on her because she does seem like such an interesting character. A, a good part of your book, now that the bank is established, a good part of your book deals with it, just the you know the fascinating operating culture of the book of of small scale lending, of lending in an incredibly hostile environment, of the regulators and competitors. So on one hand, fighting to survive against the the state banking uh, regulator or the state insurance regulator, the downtown merchants, as you mentioned. On the other hand, working you know, client by client, uh, the culture inside the bank, the women inside the bank, it's, just, it's a, a nice uh, and fascinating account of, of what this bank was like on the inside. There, there are many, many stories to tell, but you know, perhaps share just a few that entice the readers. Hmm. Um, I think I would perhaps share too. So the fact that people tend to really focus on Magdalena Walker, they forget that she didn't run this bank all on her own, that she depended on other African-American women. Um, And so we don't always get to see or pay attention to the women that are around her. And um, I, I do talk about in the last chapter, this kind of kind of generational conflict that right. She, up she with, her, her main assistant and yes. her as coming up, they, as is often the case, they have a bit of a falling out. Yes. So you have a generation of women who were born in slavery, who worked to create these opportunities, who are now hiring and working side by side with a generation of young women who were never enslaved and who have been the beneficiaries of the kinds of opportunities that these other women created. And they chafe under some of the restrictions. They don't want to do prayer every day. They, 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 they want to wear the latest fashions and not what's not what's known as kind of the St. Luke uniform, the crisp white um, shirt waist and the long, dark, nondescript um, skirt. Uh, this is the roaring 20s, especially when this is going on. So you ha- and these women want to be able to listen to jazz and not just have to listen to, to scriptures. So she does, be- to, in particular, this is really in kind of encapsulated when she butts heads with another incredibly talented, ambitious, younger woman, um, Lelia um, Banquet, who um, doesn't quite want to bend, you know, to Walker's vision of her. So the book does talk about that. And then the book also 
tries to go beyond the St. Luke Bank to really look at the ways in which this, especially in the 1920s before the crash, there is a culture of African-American, I guess, venture capital. Uh, basically, you have these warring you know, black finance companies who are all vying for the dollars of um, these working class African-Americans. So the 1920s are roaring, not just for um, Anglo-Americans, but African-Americans too. They're interested in investing in stocks and uh, as a way to achieve a kind of commercial emancipation. Um, They're interested in in growing their wealth and, you know, get rich quick schemes. Um, So uh, I do have what I think is a pretty interesting and really relatively unknown um, discussion about the kind of contests for the pocketbooks, as well as the hearts and minds of women, of young women and men uh, in the 20s, Right, you know, in this uh, right before um, the market, of course, uh, falls out. So this this is where my my story uh, begins to emerge. I, I'm you know interested in the history of the stock market, and indeed, mm-hmm. the twenties were a roaring challenge, and the um, the expansion of the numbers of people investing in stocks ultimately mm-hmm. worked out poorly. But it was indeed the roaring twenties in the sense of uh, more and more people getting involved in finance uh, for better or for worse. More and more people getting involved with the stock market for better or for worse. And what your work does is nicely uh, explain how that works in in a minority community that is facing so many uh, 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 difficulties or challenges in, in getting involved in that. But nevertheless, they did you know. It, the outlines of modern finance you can see in the African-American community in the 1920s, as you can mm-hmm. see it elsewhere. And you can also see it getting too heated, too frothy, and it does lead, uh, you know, we do have the crash. Uh, after uh, the stock market crash and then the, the depression, a lot of banks closed. Ultimately, the St. Luke's Bank uh, fails along with many others and is uh, absorbed in several other bank uh, bank acquisitions. And at that point, uh, Maggie Lena Walker is of a certain age where it's it's really past her time to be able to fix that or change that uh, to, or start all over again. Is that a fair assertion? Well, actually, the bank survives. It's one of the very few banks to survive past the Great Depression. I know my book ends around the crash when they the banks um, merge, but I do just really quickly want to go back to say something about the Roaring Twenties before I talk about the bank merger um, is to talk. So the African-Americans are, you know, butting up against some limitations, but they are also creating their own kinds of definitions and and, uh, ways of participating in the market. And one of the most important is for them is to try to mitigate or, or talk about investing in African-American business as, as almost you know, risk-free. And part of the way that they do that is convincing people that they are doing something to advance or uplift the race, um, as uh, uplift the race. So African-Americans, you know, are not, I mean, now we may look back and think how foolish of them to have you know, bought on the margins and, and, and not seen the weaknesses of these comp- companies or these um, appeals uh, for um, these uh, appeals for capital. But they were thinking strategically 
um, and feeling that by uplifting the race collectively, that that in a way kind of mitigated risk. But the but but of course, Magdalena Walker, always an astute businesswoman, and she is nearing, nearing, um, nearing the end of her life. She passes away in 1934. But in the very late 20s, she begins to notice the St. Luke's Bank's profits are dipping a little. Um, but of course, she has a weather eye on other African-American banks in the community. Richmond is really... Um, unique in that it has a number of African-American owned banks more than any other city. So um, she sees that the other banks, other African-American banks that are operating are really suffering. And so she approaches those bank presidents and for their collective survival, she proposes a merger. So in 1929, she does merge um, with one bank um, and then the the uh, the commercial bank and trust, they decide, oh, we're going to try to see if we can weather it. So in 1929, when she merges with one African-American owned bank, the bank changes its name. It becomes the Consolidated Bank and Trust. I guess she's going with the idea that they, she consolidated these two banks. Mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. course, by 1931, the early 30s, depression is real, is his hit. The commercial bank and trust decides Yes, we need to go ahead and consolidate. So basically, consolidated bank and trust becomes three black owned banks. But the St. Luke Bank is by far the strongest of the partners. She merged as a way to protect the other banks um, from failure more than um, to uh, protect the St. Luke. And then consolidated becomes the longest running black controlled bank up until 2011. So it does have a life of more than 100 years uh, when, of course, it is finally, um, you know, succumbs to the subprime mortgage um, kind of crisis and um, closes and is absorbed uh, along with some other banks in today what is known as Premier Bank, which operates in Richmond. And is Premier, uh, we talked about the kind of the revival of Maggie Lena Walker, is is Premier Bank uh, uh, Participating in that, are they? Does she loom large in their archives, or are they unaware of the history? I think everyone in Richmond is really aware of the history, and I can say for for me, I, I can't really answer that question. I'm not for sure, but I can say that when the bank, you know, was just crippled beyond uh, any saving. Um, in 2011, at least the people who purchased the bank had the foresight to know that those bank records were important. And they and, and so there were people who helped bridge, um, uh, had been part of Consolidated, who were now executives who were brought over, you know, in Premier. And they did help shepherd those records over to Virginia Union University. So which if rather than not, just destroying them, no or, way, exactly. Yeah. There is no way I could have done this, this, um, this book without those records. It's still a fragmented record. Everything is not there, but it is still a really rich record. And those records go up to it has really rich records up until like the 40s and the 50s. So anyone who's really interested in trying to see how this bank Uh, consolidated kind of merges in this new kind of financial era, the post, especially post-war. Did did consolidated operate after the war, primarily serving the African-American community, or did it become a more generic bank? 
No, it was all it was always black control. So women, yeah. it wasn't necessarily women control, but it always had um, um, branches. It had different branches that operated in African American communities. African Americans were its primary customer base, but of course they welcomed all depositors. But overwhelmingly, most of the lending that they did was was to black churches, black businesses, and in black areas um, of town. Though they did, you know, have a, a portfolio that included. Um, you know, the municipal clients uh, uh, and other, biz- mm-hmm. say, white-owned or non-Black-owned businesses and um, opportunities. But it, it always sustained its commitment to the African-American community. Well, it's it's a fascinating uh, story, uh, Professor Garrett Scott. This The book is Banking on Freedom, Black Women in U.S. Finance Before the New Deal uh, came out earlier this year from Columbia University Press. I, I encourage our listeners to get a copy. You've heard a few of the stories, but really, there are really, really interesting stories on on pretty much every page. Professor Garrett Scott, I wanted to ask you, often the case with the academic authors, uh, give you an opportunity if you uh, have recovered from from writing and publishing this book, uh, what your next what your next project is, what you're you're working on, or, or, or are you still in the in the uh, you know uh, taking a break after having uh, uh, produced this uh, this very interesting work? No, as as I think most people know, as you're doing one project, there are always these and you know these um, these things that are calling you um, that catch capture your attention. So my work focuses on race, gender, and capitalism. So my new project, which I'm really excited about, to really be able to really devote a lot more time to, is looking at peonage. So modern day slavery. So it's looking at um, hundreds of African-American peons who were basically enslaved on this island um, in the deep south. And um, they were forced to, you know, to make bootleg liquor. Um, And it has... Is this during the 1920s, 1920s during prohibition? Um, So it has gangsters. It has, you know, GIs, um, the spies. um, And where is this island? It's in the middle of the Mississippi River. Okay. It's it's really it's it's just going to be I think it's going to be such a fascinating story. But I I I have a lot of information, but I really want to try to capture the experiences of these of the African Americans. But it was reputed, you know, by the government that these that this island I call it Horror Island that this island supplied you know two thirds of the bootleg liquor um, in the Deep South. So this is a way for me to just kind of look at informal economy sure. um, and, and it's kind of a, the dark side, I think, of capitalism. Uh, well, there, there are a number of those. So you, you, have, <laughs> you have a choice. Um, uh, thank you so much again. The book is Banking on Freedom. Uh, Professor Shanette Garrett-Scott, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, I look forward to uh, discussing your, your next project when it's out. Thank you. 